Well, Isaiah's been prophesying that Israel has two needs. They need to be delivered from the national slavery that the Babylonians will be incurring against them. The Babylonians, Isaiah's prophesied, is going to take them away. And they need to be delivered from their spiritual sinfulness. And uh, these are the two things that Isaiah now spends his time uh, exploring of how to believe that God is going to do that. And what Isaiah sets forward for us here in Isaiah 44 and 45 is calling for the people to trust in the word of God, that they have every reason to believe that God is going to save them and that God is going to deliver them, even in the face of what may seem to be impossible odds. And so that sets the table for what Isaiah now wants to declare as he calls upon the people to put their hope, to put their trust back in the Lord, that though they will be carried away into captivity, God is going to do amazing things and they need to put their trust in that. This then message will help us as we go forward through Isaiah because it's going to teach us something that when God says something, he will do it. And that is very weighty for us when we think about all the promises of God. And we'll look at that tonight. Then Isaiah 44, let's start in verse 24. I think the chapter break of 45 really should be right here. Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid." great opening here as God now describes the strength of his word and he lays it out by saying you can trust in the word of God for two particular reasons number one since God spoke it he is the almighty and you see that in verse 24 I am the Lord I made all things I alone stretched out the heavens I spread out the earth by myself I am the one who makes the wise look like fools I make the diviner be foolish, who turns people who speak falsely into liars. He says, I am the one who can be trusted because I alone am God and I am over all these things and created these things. So trust in his word. Number two, he then continues and and says in verse 26, when my words are spoken by one of my messengers, they always come to pass. When my people speak a message from me, it always comes about. Here, as we've been doing our spiritual gift study, gives us yet another important definition, a good reminder of what true prophecy is. 
When God's servants speak the very words of God, they always come to pass. There is no error. There is no interpretation. There is no mistake. Here is God saying that the reason you can trust my word is because if it comes out of the mouth of my servant, it will happen. It will come to pass, which leads then God for to make three amazing declarations right here. And he has to set it up this way because he's going to speak of three seemingly impossible things. And so he has to tell you, trust these three things because I am God and I am over all things. And when my word is spoken, it always happens. Notice the first one that he declares there at the end of verse 26. He says of Jerusalem, it will be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they will be rebuilt. Remember what Isaiah has prophesied. Isaiah has already not only prophesied, but first he witnessed Assyria come in and destroy all the fortified cities of Judah except Jerusalem. We saw that as Assyria came in. And God, through a mighty angel, delivers Jerusalem. But Isaiah then turned and prophesied and said, because you didn't trust me, And you tried to rely upon Egypt. You tried to rely upon other people rather than the Lord. Babylon will come in and it will be all taken away and there will not be anything left. And when we read the history of Israel, that is exactly what happened. The cities of Judah were destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The people were carried off into Babylonian captivity. And Isaiah has predicted all that, but he gives them this first word. Guess what? Jerusalem will be rebuilt. People will live there again. And the cities of Judah, they will be inhabited and rebuilt again. That's his first amazing declaration. The second thing he says, is God's going to dry up the rivers. Now, there's two ideas to that. One, when is the last time you remember God doing some pretty amazing things about drying up some seas and rivers? All right. We're thinking Exodus, sir. Exodus is a reminder of God in the past for history of history has dried up the Red Sea and caused Israel to come out of Egyptian slavery. And so you have a figure here of you will come out of Babylonian slavery. You will come back to the land. But there's an interesting part of this declaration. Because. This is also how Babylon, the city, fell. The great city of Babylon was built upon the great river Euphrates. And the way that the Persians overtook that city was they spent quite a a bit amount of time diverting the Euphrates River so that it lowered the level enough that the armies could go in under the walls and attack the city. And so Isaiah may even have that in view and say, Babylon is is going to fall and you will be set free just like the Exodus way on back in the days of Moses. And he also may even be indicating how Babylon is going to fall because notice the next thing he says, he names the very leader who's going to do it. He says Cyrus is going to be, and notice the title that's given to him. It's why I've called the title God's Surprising Shepherd. He says, Cyrus is my shepherd. He is the one who's going to come and deliver you. He is the one that's going to fulfill my purposes. It is this prophecy that causes all of the liberal scholars today to then stop at Isaiah 40 and say, well, we must have a new author here. 
Because it is not possible for God to predict what was going to happen in the future and it come to pass. And so a second Isaiah came along. He tacked this on at the end of chapter 39 after these events all happened and wrote it down just like that. But notice it's not the message. The message is I can speak things in advance. That's what these chapters have been all about. So that you won't attribute it to your idols. I will tell you ahead of time what's going to happen. Now, the last date that we were given for the writing of Isaiah, the last prophecy that helped us date the book was around 701 B.C., around 701 B.C. And the events that he is speaking of would surround like Cyrus destroying Babylon was in 539 B.C. And so we're talking about upwards of 160, 170 years ahead of time. God predicting Babylon will fall. You will be set free and Cyrus will be the one to do it so that you can go back to your land, rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild all the cities. Now, here's. I think what is amazing about that, if you would uh, like to take a stab, please tell me who the president will be in the year 2170. Name his name and all that he's going to do. Name all of his policies. Name what he's going to do in the world and all the changes that he's going to make. That's what God is doing right here. Standing 160 plus years in advance and saying, let me tell you who the world power is going to be. It's not even going to be Babylon, who wasn't even the power when Isaiah said it. It was Assyria. He says, let's go past that. Babylon will rise, carry you away and then fall. And it'll be all at the hands of a man named Cyrus. He is my shepherd. I will cause him to do all of this. And only God can speak things in such detail and have it be so accurate like that. In fact, notice the accuracy. The book of Ezra is written around 450 B.C. And here's the history of what happened. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house of Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with them. And he let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So in 450 B.C., Ezra records, here's what Cyrus actually decreed. Now, the skeptic comes along and says, well, so what? That's in the Bible, right? You know, the scriptures validate the scriptures, which is impressive because these are writers at different times in different locations. But if that were not enough, this thing tells us the very same thing. The Cyrus Cylinder is an amazing archaeological find in which is recorded upon it the decree of Cyrus to send all the Babylonian captives home and to go worship their gods and to rebuild their towns and rebuild their temples just like Ezra recorded and just like Isaiah prophesied was going to happen. We even have a physical 
cylinder that records this very truth. And so the prophecy of Isaiah is amazing. And this is the premise that God is setting up. When I say it, it happens. And it happens just as God says. And that's now what leads to God now explaining why they must listen to what he is going to do. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze. I will cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen I call you by your name I name you though you do not know me I am the Lord and there is no other beside me there is no God I equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me I am the Lord and there is no other I form light and create darkness I make well-being and create calamity I am the Lord who does all these things. Now God steps in and says, let me tell you all that Cyrus is going to do. He's going to be victorious and he's going to rule over all things, knocking down the exalted places, taking all the wealth is all that's been described here in these first three verses. He sets up that this is not just simply Cyrus having a small success. He is going to be victorious and God is the one who does it. Even God says, not only is it my power behind him to do it, he says, I have called Called you out and named you, even though you don't know me. It's almost as if God is having a conversation with Cyrus, and Cyrus isn't even born yet. And he's saying, here's all that you're going to do, and here's how it's all going to go, and here's how you're going to conquer, and here's all you're going to take, and I'm the one that's causing that, just so you know. And I'm telling you ahead of time, so that you won't attribute it to other idols or other gods. Now, why is God doing all that? Why is God raising up Cyrus to set the people free? Why is he causing all those things to happen? And notice the things that God said about that. Number one, he says, because you're my people and I'm going to act on your behalf. Because you're mine, I'm not going to send you away. You are my people and I am not going to turn my back upon you. That is the first picture that he gives. The second is the world is supposed to know. That there is only one God and there is no other. All of this is laid out, God says, is because I want everybody to know from the rising of the sun all the way to the west that everybody on earth will recognize. Look at God. And that's what this prophecy intends. And that's the only thing scholars can do who don't want to accept the divine nature of God is say, well, this must have been written after the fact. Because... This is staggering for a prophet of God to write down with such detail and accuracy events that would happen 160 years in advance. God says, I'm doing this so that, A, I'll save my people, and two, so that everybody will bow down and worship me and recognize that there is no other God but me. In verse 7, to point out that God rules over all these affairs. He says, I create light, I create darkness, I create calamity, I create well-being. I am over the affairs of the earth. 
God says, I'm not asleep at the wheel. It's not as if all of these things are going on and He's not aware of them. God knows that the Babylonians are going to rise up and take His people. God is behind that. And God knows that they're going to stay in that slavery for many years. Seventy years they'll be there. And then God says, then I'm going to set you free. So God is saying, I'm aware of your calamity. I'm aware of your well-being. I know what is going on. I rule over all of those affairs. Which now leads to this great setup. God says, so don't contend with me. Basically, don't argue with me. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or what work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him. The one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Here's his message. Don't disagree with how God operates in this world. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of the audience of Isaiah's prophecy, you could see why there would want to be some debate. Lord, we're not really thrilled that you're allowing a heathen nation worse than us to come in and destroy us, destroy the temple, destroy the land, carry us away into slavery, let us rot there in judgment for 70 years, and then set us free by another world dictator. I'm not really thrilled with that plan. Can we kind of bypass all that? You can make it makes sense to me. That doesn't sound any fun for that generation. They're going to go die in Babylon. That's it for them. And God comes along and says, don't disagree with how I'm operating. Don't disagree with the things that I am doing. And furthermore, don't disagree to such an extent that you'll now resist what I'm doing. And I think that's a really important message that I want to stop on just for a moment. Because how often people want to use as an excuse for lacking faith or belief in Christ, for lacking faith in God, is because they don't agree with what they see going on in the world around them. They don't like it, and since I don't agree, that means God's not ruling. And God steps in right here and addresses that very question. Israel, you don't like what's going on. You don't like how that's all playing out. That is like the pottery arguing with the maker and saying, I don't like what you're doing. That's the illustration he uses in verse 9. What are you making? What are you doing? How can you do that? You're not doing it right. That's the clay arguing to the potter. And God says, that doesn't happen. The clay does not argue with the maker, nor the children argue with the parents, he goes on to illustrate. 
We need to probably get that out of our world today. Children argue the parents. Parents in charge. Kids, you don't argue. You do. He just uses those two illustrations. And here's God saying, my creation, all my people, you're my children. Who are you to argue with me? I am God. And we do not argue with Him. And we do not tell Him and say, I don't like how you're running the world. I don't like how things are going. I don't like how things are happening in my life or circumstances that are taking place. God says, you don't have any right to that. He says, I am God. To put this in another way, basically, what I believe God is saying, and it is a critical truth that all of us must come to accept. If we are going to truly love God, then that means we must let Him be God. Here's what I mean by that. If we truly believe in God and truly love Him, then that's recognizing that He's in charge and not us. And He's ruling over the affairs of this earth and the affairs of men and women. And if we truly love God, then we'll let God be God. And we will let Him take care of these things. It is a recognition that God acts in His wisdom, He is the Maker. Therefore, even if it defies my understanding, I put my trust in him. Friends, I really do think we have to gravitate back to the concept of faith. If we were going to understand it all, then God would not have to usher a call of faith. The whole point is that God is in operation and He has revealed His will to us, but that does not mean that we understand every little thing that's going on. And yet we live in a world that says, well, if I don't understand what's going on, then I'm out with God. That's the whole point of faith. That's the whole point of what faith is about, is I am putting my trust in God in terms of my life, in terms of what's going on around me. I am recognizing that He is God. And if I'm not going to do that, then what I'm saying is I'm God. And I must have all knowledge and everything that happens in life must pass by my checklist. Let God be God. And that's what God is telling Israel. You don't like how I'm doing it? Who are you to complain? You don't like how I'm making things move in this world? Don't talk back to God. That's the message that he gives them. Understand that God is operating, that God is acting in his wisdom. And we have to remember everything that God does is right. And there's faith right there that everything God does is right. And he will take care of these things. And he oversees and watches and knows what is going on in this world. And watches and sees and knows what is going on in your life. And that we are putting our life into His hands. He is God. And by definition, we're supposed to yield to Him. That we submit our lives to Him. And that God does not need to conform to human wisdom. He does not need our okay for the things that He does in this world. And so that's the message He gives them in verses 9 and 10. How dare you ask of these things as if you don't like what I'm doing. I'm accomplishing great things. Verses 12 and 13, he reminds them, I'm the one who's bringing Cyrus and I will do these things because I've spoken it. It will happen. Now, verses 14 to 25, the final section that he gives 
after their, their complaint. Don't complain about what God is doing because understand something. You know what God is doing? God is saving his people. God is operating for our good. That's one of the difficult things to always get our minds around is that God's goodness and God's glory always works out for our spiritual benefit. The cross is the greatest proof of that. Here's Jesus saying his greatest glorification would be through the death on the cross. And yet the greatest moment of glorification is for every human being's good. What God does is ultimately for our good and exactly what we need. Look at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchants of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides Him. Truly you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Let's just stop there. Interesting declaration he makes because notice he describes a reversal is going to occur. He says, now the wealth of the nations are all going to belong to Israel. The peoples from around the earth, he describes Egypt and Cush and the Sabaeans. They're going to come in and they're going to follow, follow Israel. Coming in their chains, they're going to bow down. And now I'm going to ask the question now, what is Isaiah prophesying? What is exactly he looking at right here? Is he looking at a historical time when after Israel came out of Babylonian captivity, that nations would come from around the earth and they would come and bring in all of their wealth and Israel would capture all that wealth to themselves and all the peoples would follow Israel and they would bow down and say that God is here. Well, you follow from 536 B.C. to the coming of Christ, that never happened. And so instead of seeing this as a physical reality, that physical nations were going to do this, it is really a picture of what is going to happen with the new spiritual Israel. The imagery becomes beautiful. And I believe we need to see this as the spiritual Israel that Christ would bring to the earth and bring this glorious kingdom that we get to be a part of for three reasons. Number one. Physical Israel never experienced this reversal. Number two, in Isaiah 60, he's going to use the exact same language again. And there we're clearly talking about the arrival of Christ in chapter 60. And so it's being alluded to already right here that God is doing amazing things. And Israel may not seem to like what's going on with the Babylonians and the Persians, but he's accomplishing something in the long run for their good and for their glory. And number three, this text is referred to by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24, a text that we'll eventually get to in just a few weeks. But notice what the Apostle Paul said. 1 Corinthians 14, 24. But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Here's the Apostle Paul referencing Isaiah and saying, here's what's going to happen in your worship and as you're teaching and you're doing your good is that people are supposed to come in and they're supposed to recognize that God is with you, that God is among you. And that's why he criticizes them in 1 Corinthians 14 for the chaos.
chaos that was going on in that local group. And says you can't have that. You're supposed to have a building and edification that would happen so that when the outsider comes in, there is a single response. God is with you. And they bow down and worship. Here is Isaiah predicting that very thing and saying, here's what's going to happen. Peoples from all over are going to follow you and they're going to bow down. They're going to worship God and they're going to understand that God is with us, that there is no other, that there is no other God. This is the picture of what God wants, is God wants us to be out in the world so that people will see, that the world will see. That God is with us and recognize that there is no other God which will cause them to want to worship. And then notice the two prongs he gives. Verse 17. Israel will be saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. And you shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. We already talked about how when God says something, it happens. And so here is God's promise. Is there is a salvation that is going to be experienced by physical Israel. In fact, notice verse 19. He says, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what's right. Here is, here is God saying, I didn't tell you about your salvation and your deliverance so that it wouldn't happen. I obviously said it for a reason. I spoke of your deliverance because it was going to happen. I spoke of your salvation because it was surely going to come about. Israel, trust in the Lord and recognize His salvation will come. And then notice how it's offered to the whole world. Verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge or carry about the wood and idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declares it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none besides me. Stop there. He's saying, who told you this ahead of time? He's visualizing that people in 536 B.C. are going to read Isaiah's prophecy and recognize this is exactly what's going to happen and God says I told you ahead of time I told you this is exactly how it's going to go even though you don't believe me 160 years prior God says it's going to happen verse 22 turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other I have I myself I have by myself I have sworn and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Paul quotes that as well. Here is a picture. He says, this will happen. I have spoken a word. It is going to come about. Salvation is going to come to the whole world. And that salvation is to cause people to turn to the Lord. And as we then become worshipers of God, the world is to see that and say, God is among you and become worshipers as well. Notice the final two verses are perhaps the most powerful of all and where we'll reside for our last few minutes. Verse 24. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To Him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against Him. In the Lord 
all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And so he rounds us out and says, righteousness and strength are only found one place. It is found in the Lord. All who belong to him, verse 25, all who are in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel. Here's a great promise. Notice it. They will be justified. Hope that's big with all of our Roman stuff we've been doing on Sunday morning. Here's his promise. Those who belong to him, who are his children, they will be justified. There is no doubt about it. It is a promise that God has issued to his people. There is no cause for concern for the salvation of our souls, for God has promised that if we are his children, justification will come. And also, verse 25, the offspring of Israel shall glory. They will find their glory in the Lord. They will find their joy in the Lord. They will find their strength in the Lord. And that's what verse 24 is saying. It is only in the Lord that strength is found and righteousness is found. Let's conclude by by putting all these pieces together this way. Number one, God has proven that he always keeps his word. And he's proven it two ways. Number one, he created the earth. He rules over the earth. And he knows what's happening on the earth. He knows what's happening to you. He knows what's going on. He's not surprised by these things. He is fully aware of the things that are happening. And so when he says something, he knows his words will come to pass because he is over all of these things. His words, his purposes, his plans cannot be thwarted. There is not going to be a day where you go, well, that really messed up God, and I sure hope he can figure this one out. He goes, I'm over all of this. I've made it all. I'm fully aware of all these things. And he's proven that he always keeps his word, number two, because we have historical fulfillment of that. These very words of Isaiah promising about the people of Israel being released from Babylonian captivity by a conqueror named Cyrus through a Persian nation that had not even been raised up yet and a person that had not been born with a decree that they would go and rebuild happening exactly as God said puts confidence and faith for us in the word of God. When God says this is the situation, this will happen, we have every reason to believe it. And so let me give you some of the promises that Isaiah has said. Remember it a couple weeks ago. Number one, amazing promise. God promised that he'll wipe away our sins and never remember them again. God does not go back on his word. To belong to him, he says, I wipe those sins clean. They are gone. They are blotted out. And I forget them. I do not remember them anymore. He has promised from Isaiah, if they would just turn to me, they will be delivered. Salvation will come to those who will turn themselves to the Lord, who will understand that they need to respond to the Lord, to recognize that He is God. We are the creation. We are not to be disagreeing with Him, but recognize He is in charge. We will submit to his ways. We will submit to his laws. We will obey all that he says. Number three, he promised if we don't resist him, but if we'll truly trust him, justification, salvation, strengthening will come to our lives. This was Isaiah's prediction of what would happen with the new people of God. I hope that you'll put your hope in that. 
And I hope it will encourage you to read the scriptures more, to see what God has promised for his people, the hope that we have. When we studied Ephesians, when Ephesians began, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I can't begin to comprehend it. But it's a powerful promise that God says everybody who is in Christ has. Look at the scriptures and see the promises of God and recognize those must come to pass. His word cannot be broken and his promises never fail. You pull your psalm books out and we sing an invitation song. And I, in this invitation, encourage you to find your hope in the Lord, and to find your glory in the Lord, the strength in the Lord, and find your salvation in God. For there is no other God. There is no other hope. There is no other salvation or deliverance that will come. God is the only answer for your life. God is the only way to be saved from your sins. God is the only way to be able to have eternal life. God says, there's no one else, but I freely give this to you. If you will make the decision to stop resisting the Lord and stop resisting his commands, stop resisting his charge and rule that he has, submit to him with all of your heart. Confess Jesus to be the son of God who died for your sins. Turn away from your life of sin and now submit yourself to the reign of Christ and follow him. Be immersed in water to have your sins washed away and be reconciled to God. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?